This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books and Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. My guest is Alexandra M. Apolloni, author of Freedom Girls, Voicing Femininity in 1960s British Pop, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Apolloni takes a case study approach to tease out many different strands of the nature of femininity in 1960s Britain, but she tackles much more than gender in this book. She also considers larger discourses of authenticity, race, sexuality, and class, which dictated and shaped the careers and the reception of the group of singers she writes about. In what is almost a group biography, Apolloni writes chapters on Sandy Shaw, Scylla Black, Lulu, Dusty Springfield, Millie Small, Mariana Faithful, and P.P. Arnold. They are black and white from around Britain and in the case of P.P. Arnold from the United States and also from uh, Jamaica. There's a singer from Jamaica as well. Many come from working class backgrounds and all were very young when they first gained national attention. While most of them have an international following, their careers were rooted in the UK, but the music they sang was fundamentally influenced by the music of Black Americans. Apolloni carefully separates and interrogates the maelstrom of identity, music, political agendas, and meanings that surround these women. Thank you for joining me today, Alexandra. I look forward to talking to you about this really thought-provoking book. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. How did you come to the topic of this book? Um, So I came to this topic as a singer. Uh, So I studied classical voice as an undergrad um, and, you know, in my in my teens as well. And something that happened to me several times during the course of um, those years of studying singing um, is that my voice teachers would often suggest that I sing arrangements of African-American spirituals. Um, I am a white woman. And so when they were making the suggestion to me, there was often this sort of implication that there was something about my voice that lent itself well to that particular genre of music. Um, And because it's not a genre of music that is associated with my background and my cultural upbringing, um, you know, I was kind of, this kind of raised a flag for me. And I was sort of interested in thinking through like, what was it about the sound of my voice that they thought, you know, lent itself well to Black music. Um, Around the same time, I had the experience of hearing Dusty Springfield sing for the first time. So she was kind of the singer who brought me to this project. Um, And I had an experience which I think other people have had too, which is they heard Dusty Springfield singing Son of a Preacher Man, assumed that she was a Black American singer, and then were surprised to discover that she was in fact white and from England. Um, And, you know, not everybody has understood her voice in that way. Not everybody has made those same connections. Um, But I was interested in kind of what was happening there, like what was happening that moved people to essentially hear race in Dusty Springfield's voice in that particular way. Um, So that was kind of my way in. I, I wrote a paper when I was still an undergrad that kind of planted some of the seeds for this project. Um, It became my dissertation project. Um, And I think because Dusty Springfield was the way in, that's what kind of drew me to this moment in the 1960s. Um, Kind of looking, using her as the sort of door led me to these other singers who also, you know, the, the questions about race and their singing style were not quite the same, but they were kind of like interconnected. Um, And then, you know, I I think it's also a time period that was interesting to me, in part because there has been a lot that's been written about music of this period and from uh, 
Britain in particular, because this was the era of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the British invasion. And while there's been a lot that has been written about this period, it's been about a very small group of artists. So there's a lot out there about the Beatles. There's a lot out there about the Stones, about Eric Clapton, about, you know, kind of that crew of male artists. But almost nothing about the women who were working during that period. Um, so it it just was a really rich moment to be engaging with. Um, there were a lot of songs and recordings that scholars hadn't really thought about before, um, a lot of really interesting sources. So I look at a lot of like teen magazines that, you know, musicologists hadn't really kind of grappled with yet as sources that had something to say about music. Um, so yeah, I think that kind of is the story of how how this project kind of came to be. Um, I want to talk uh, first, ask you some sort of uh, basically overview questions, kind of set the scene for our listeners, and then maybe we can talk about um, some more specifics. So the first question really is, um, you answered like, what drew you to Dusty Springfield and sort of the 60s in Britain, but why did you choose these particular women that I listed in the intro? Um, So these women were all singers who, one thing they had in common, um, as you mentioned, was that they were very young when they began their careers. Um, And this was true of a lot of uh, musicians during this period, but all of these singers kind of started in show business when they were still in their teens and were still relatively young, um, kind of when their careers sort of took off around, most of them that happened around like 64, 65. and they were all singers who, you know, had some kind of chart success in the UK. So they, you know, to to a greater and lesser extent, P.P. Um, Arnold of the bunch is probably the one who um, didn't have as much chart success, but even she had a number of songs that would have become well known. Um, so it was that combination of singers who were kind of young and kind of, that that to me sort of connected them. They were singers who all they all have interesting voices in some way. So Dusty Springfield, as I mentioned, there were always these questions about race and appropriation with her voice. Um, Millie Small, who was from Jamaica, she had a really very sort of distinctive high-pitched, almost shrill kind of singing voice that people either loved or hated. Um, Scylla Black had this voice that really evoked a kind of Liverpool accent. So that was another piece of it, was that each of these singers, there was something about their voices that audiences kind of jumped on or responded to or, you know, reacted strongly against in some way. And so I was really interested in the voices themselves and like what those voices um, could kind of tell us about the historical moment. Well, that brings up another question I had, which was that, you know, frankly, there are a lot of books now that um, look at singers and their voices and make larger arguments about identity and that sort of thing. But what I have not seen, at least in popular music studies, is a book like yours where each chapter has a section where you do a deep dive on a song or songs and rather than saying and then she moved this way or she was wearing this right and and sort of bringing in the entire performance you really think about the voice like what was this singer doing with her voice you use you know vocal terms in terms of like you know glottal stops sometimes that kind of thing and you really think about how they sounded. And while there are other places where you might talk about their look or what they wore or how, you know, all of that, you don't necessarily bring that into this analytical portion of each chapter. So what does it give you to do that, to make that analytical choice? What, what did you discover by, by doing that? Yeah. So one term that I use in the book is this idea about vocal discipline um, and the way that, people are kind of trained to use their voices in ways that um, kind of move, make them sort of fit into dominant ideas about what it means to be a girl or what it means to be a white girl or what it means to be a black girl. And so 
I think I, I was really interested in kind of actually paying serious attention to what singers were doing um, when they were producing sound um, because it's sort of, it lets you think about the way that we really internalize ideas about race and gender. And I mean that really literally, like singers are motivated by ideas about identity, whether they know it or not. And it's literally shaping the way that they are using their bodies and using their kind of vocal folds and, you know, whether they're being loud or whether they're being soft or whether they're articulating in a particular way. These are all things that are shaped by how they are sort of enculturated as um, people in the world, essentially. And a lot of that, some of that might be stuff that they've learned in voice lessons. Um, A lot of the singers who I write about because they were pop singers didn't necessarily have formal vocal training, but they were listening to music around them and listening to people speaking around them and sort of, internalizing um, in that way, the ways in which, you know, you would sound like a girl. Um, So I think thinking about voice in this really kind of specific and particular way that makes it about like what singers are doing with their bodies and how that is producing sound, it it kind of lets me think about um, identity as this thing that is, that really shapes the way we inhabit our physical selves. Um, and that leads me to another question. You were talking about you wanted to think about what does it mean to be a black girl or a white girl and that sort of thing. And your first chapter really sets out this idea of what that might be, particularly through a reading of teen magazines, which I think is really interesting. And I think would be helpful to our listeners to get a sense of, you know, what were you reading against? Like what, not against like, against the archive, against the grain, but against like, this is, this is the kind of landscape in which people were thinking about girlhood. And I thought going to these teen magazines was a masterstroke to see, you know, what were people reading about femininity um, and young femininity specifically? Yeah. So this is an interesting period because this England is sort of has come out of World War II. It had a longer kind of period of recovery than uh, happened in the United States. And so by the time we get to sort of this moment in the 1960s, um, there's a lot of, there are a lot of ideas in circulation about like wanting to kind of define the UK as this sort of modern culture and the idea of like new femininity and young women are sort of part of this. So you have, you know, young women who are, thinking about new kinds of opportunities, entering the workplace um, in different ways that might not have been possible before. Um, And those kinds of stories were really common in the publications that were aimed at young women at the time. Um, And I was interested in thinking about how the kind of media that was being produced for girls and women um, was kind of part of part of the landscape, part of a musical landscape, essentially, because a lot of the singers who I write about, they are featured in these kinds of magazines as examples of like, this is a modern girl, you could kind of be like her. Um, And so, you know, a, a lot of the magazines and papers that I was looking at, you know, like I said, they have all of these stories about girls kind of going from rural areas and kind of moving to the big city and taking on, you know, modern jobs, working as secretaries and models and, you know, kind of moving into this kind of really vibrant sort of youth culture and girl singers like Lulu, like Scylla Black were also kind of, their stories were narrated in a very similar way. So with Lulu, it was, you know, she left Scotland and moved to London and, you know, had this career as a musician. Scylla Black, she kind of was discovered in Liverpool and also made this move to the big city. Um, And, you know, a lot of the stories in these publications for girls would talk about, you know, what their lives were like, kind of living in their living in their own flat for the first time, um, what kinds of clothes they were wearing, what sort of social life they had. Um, And so I think thinking through how that affected how people understood their music was a piece that I was kind of interested in exploring. Um, And I think these ideas about like, 
your modern and your independent um, are kind of shaping the kinds of music that they were making in some ways. So um, Lulu, for example, you know, she really struggled to kind of define herself as somebody who was sort of independent and could sort of stand on her own because she had this portrayal in the media as being very sort of young and kind of almost childlike. So you you see these stories that are coming out about her where she's kind of struggling to sort of define herself as somebody who is kind of grown up and modern and an adult. So on the one hand, we have kind of what society expected of girls, right? That they were encouraging them to be modern, but maybe not too modern, to be independent, but maybe not too independent. Um, And these singers were having to negotiate these kind of, this transition period where women were being encouraged to leave the home and to have some kind of independent life, but of course not to be too independent and not to leave the home for too long and that sort of thing. So that's sort of where these young women were sitting. But the other thing that I think you do well in this book that I think would be nice for our listeners to sort of hear before we go into more specifics is you talk about the sort of the the pipeline or the British system of, uh, you know, the business practices and the British musical entertainment system that basically found these girls and run them through this kind of uh, system, this pipeline that gets them from, um, you know, being uh, discovered in some way or brought into the recording studio to spitting out a record and the attendant publicity on the other end. Can, and you really do talk a lot about how that system is, um, is not necessarily one that takes care of any artist, but certainly not of girls, right? And can you talk a little bit about just like what is you know, what are the girls that you're talking about? And I am using girls on purpose because they, you know, when they start, these are all young, young people, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old. What are they up against? What are they having to negotiate as they enter this system? Yeah, um, this is a, a really good question that kind of, I think, helps to kind of flesh out what the landscape looked like for them. Um, so, I think one nice way to answer this question is to look at like a specific example of a singer. And I think one whose career really reflects this really well is Sandy Shaw. Um, So her kind of arc really shows how these girl singers were being kind of brought into the music industry at a moment when there was a real premium placed on music that was exciting, that was youth oriented. Um, But then there was this sense that once they had kind of made their mark in that world and had gotten a little bit older, there was a different kind of path that they had to pursue that was different from say a group like the Beatles who kind of were able to, exert more agency over their music and kind of more kind of creative control and go off in a different sort of direction. Um, So if you look at somebody like Sandy Shaw, she has her first hit when she's 17. Um, It's very much positioned as a kind of youth pop hit. Um, But as she's like getting, I say getting older and I'm talking about like she ages like a year. (laughs) Um, And there is this sense that, you know, now that she's kind of like growing up and becoming an adult woman rather than a girl, um, she needs to kind of move away from this sort of youth oriented um, musical space into what a lot of the singers describe as being a sort of well-rounded entertainer. So the kind of typical path that you see, um, and they kind of tried to push Sandy Shaw into this was you, you have your sort of spate of pop hits. And then, you know, from there, the next step is to start kind of addressing a broader, more adult, more sort of middle class audience. Um, So with Sandy Shaw, this meant that her, her management team really kind of pushed her to do the Eurovision Song Contest, for instance. So that's, you know, a style of music that she really kind of bristled against because she didn't think that it kind of represented the kind of exciting sounds that sort of brought her into music in the first place. Um, And, you know, it was aimed at this much more sort of middle brow sort of audience that wasn't what she necessarily wanted to do. Um, And so she had this, her, I write about this in the book is she kind of does the Eurovision thing um, partly 
at kind of at the same time that she's involved in a sort of divorce scandal, she was named as the sort of corresponding party in the divorce of a married couple that she had had a romantic link with the husband. Um, And so pushing her to do Eurovision was in some ways a sort of attempt to rehabilitate her reputation. Um, Within a year or so, she kind of went back to the studio and recorded an album of rock covers and kind of kept that kind of tried as hard as she could to keep her manager um, out of the studio during that process um, because, you know, there was this sense that that wasn't the sort of music that she was supposed to be doing. Um, so that kind of trajectory happens with a number of singers. Um, Scylla Black also, you know, she kind of comes up out of the Beatlemania period. She was a close associate of the Beatles and was represented by Brian Epstein, the same as the Beatles were. Um, but she has a really different career trajectory. Um, they kind of pushed her into television and variety performance. And for her, you know, unlike Sandy Shaw, who really bristled against that, for her, she kind of really took to it and it sort of became her, you know, really the the kind of bread and butter of her career. She's almost known more now for that TV work than for her early pop and rock vocals. Um, But that was sort of like the commonly perceived trajectory was that you go into this other field of musical entertainment that is seen as more respectable for women, that is seen as more sort of adult, that is seen as having a kind of broader based audience um, that isn't as engaged with the sort of youth music culture at the time. Um, so it's it's interesting because it kind of shows the limits on girls' agency during this period. They were really dependent on the sort of infrastructure that existed and was there. Um, another aspect of this was, you know, there was this sense of the music industry as a space that was somehow kind of unsafe for girls. And I think some of this comes down to the same sorts of anxieties that were emerging around rock and roll in the U S at the same period where there was a lot of fear that, you know, rock and roll was going to sort of like spoil the purity of young white women. Um, So a lot of these singers had managers who essentially were sort of mother hen type figures. So both Lulu and Sandy Shaw had these kind of older women who sort of managed their career and sort of insulated them um, from the, you know, quote unquote, sort of bad elements of the music business. Um, So there was this sense of like wanting to sort of protect their sort of respectability. Um, now, Sandy Shaw and Lulu are both young white women. The landscape is a little bit different again for uh, girls of color. Um, so Millie Small, who came from Jamaica, she was also really closely managed um, in this case by Chris Blackwell, who was the founder of Island Records and kind of plucked Millie out of Jamaica and brought her to the UK. Um, and again, was just kind of carefully grooming her image. Um, And in her case, because she was a young black woman, you know, I make the case that there was this attempt to really kind of portray her as very youthful and very childlike in a way to sort of insulate against the sort of racial threat that black music might've represented at that time. And the fact that she was very young and very petite and had this sort of young and almost sort of petite voice kind of made her the sort of ideal example um, to be this kind of ambassador for black music at a moment when there was a lot of anxiety um, over that in Britain. Um, So your answer just brings up so many other sort of streams of thought that uh, run through the entire book. And I thought rather than having questions that just say, tell me about, you know, Minnie Small, tell me about Lulu. Instead, I want to sort of ask you about some of these broader themes that run through the book. And of course, I hope that you can give us these specific examples as you have been up to this point. Every chapter at some point, you bring up the idea of authenticity and um, how... Um, 
authenticity plays a role in their vocal production and their under and the reception of their voices and maybe even in their understanding of themselves. And I, I'd love for you to start just just tell us what does it mean to be authentic in this period and why was that discourse so omnipresent that it does come up in I think it's one of the few things that comes up in every single solitary I mean chapter obviously gender does as well but you know that this this having to contend with the discourse of authenticity is a big one for for your group of women yeah um i think so the the idea of like what does it mean to be authentic at this period um that's kind of an interesting place to start from um so I, I kind of take the stance that like authenticity is always something that is shifting and the idea of what it is to be kind of real and genuine and how, how you kind of communicate that to an audience when you're singing um, is something that, you know, is always, is always kind of being negotiated and is also always kind of paradoxically something that singers are always having to perform. So if authenticity is supposed to be this this idea that you are being real and you are being genuine, but it's also something that you have to kind of actively be trying to do all of the time. Um, and so in this particular period, I, I think again, you know, the there is this sense looking back on the 60s that the music that was good and that was valuable that was coming out of that period is the music that is sort of like uncommercial that is, you know, more, um, you know, it's artists who are singing their own songs that they've written themselves and aren't being kind of pushed around by producers. Um, But for a lot of young women, they didn't have those same kinds of opportunities to be um, as kind of, as active in their own sort of self-definition and agency, I guess. And so the ways in which they had to perform authenticity and perform, you know, this kind of sense that what they were doing was genuine and real and meaningful, um, that had to happen in a different way. And so I think for a lot of these singers, um, you know, I'm thinking about Justy Springfield. She was, she kind of was always, kind of asserting her connection to Black music as somebody who was a sort of scholar of that genre. And so that kind of, or or those genres of music. And so that kind of comes up again and again in her interviews and in her press that she kind of was always listening to and advocating for Black musicians. So for her, that was one way of kind of staking a claim that her kind of vocal sound was true and original and authentic. Um, Somebody like Marianne Faithful kind of navigated the authenticity narrative in a really interesting way. So she, you know, had a voice that changed really dramatically over the course of her career. Um, in the 60s, when she started recording at first, she had this very kind of almost like a sort of fluty soprano kind of high voice. She was singing um folk ballads and pop tunes and you know had this kind of almost you know she gets kind of talked about as being this sort of vocal ingenue at the time so this like young woman with this young voice um who is kind of tapping into this sense of you know melancholy and this sense of um this sort of deeper understanding of like the poetry behind her words. That was sort of what um, her, her recordings were kind of, I guess how how they were sort of described. Um, But she then kind of had this real sort of shift in her voice that happened as she had a kind of shift in her life circumstances. So she's mostly well known now because she had this um, very brief relationship with Mick Jagger and that, kind of ended poorly. She was kind of part of this drug bust that happened when the Rolling Stones were um, kind of arrested for um, 
having for drug possession and she was there and she kind of gets talked about as this sort of like really kind of slutty sort of fallen woman who was kind of spoiled by the Rolling Stones. And when that happens, it kind of pushes her down a different path. This was, you know, something that eventually led to addiction and trauma and a lot of illness for her that really changed her voice. And so with Marian Faithful, there is this kind of trajectory that happens where you know, in subsequent years, like her young kind of folky ingenue voice kind of gets taken up later on as being this sort of like, kind of almost like that was like, not necessarily her true voice. And then she kind of experienced trauma and her voice changed. And this new voice that she has that is sort of sounds like it's been through kind of damage and pain is the more authentic version of her voice. So this is also something that you see where for women to be sort of taken seriously, it's almost as though there has to be this kind of experience of pain and challenge and trauma. And this isn't just for women, obviously, but I think it's particularly acute in these cases where you have sort of pop singers who, you know, if they want to continue to be sort of taken seriously, have to kind of reinvent themselves. And this kind of story of pain often becomes the linchpin for that kind of new self-invention. Well, you know, this answer, you know, brings up a lot of thoughts and, and maybe we'll start with the last one since you, you ended with this idea of, um, you know, sometimes women need to be seen as having overcome something. And so I noticed that um, in a lot of cases, two things were happening. One is their origin stories were all about overcoming like rags to riches sort of thing. So we have this working class or difficult upbringing that then they, you know, they are reborn as successful musicians. Or again, as you were talking about with Mary and Faithful, and there's a couple of others as well, who have something traumatic happen to them over the course of their careers, which then they must overcome. And um, one of the things that I valued from your work is you you brought up Robin James's ideas about resilience and talking about how um, the idea of resilience is valued only so long as you overcome the thing that and the and the way that you overcome it allows you then to become uh, part of the capitalist system. Like you can make money or you can for you or other people because either on the back of your resilience or because of your resilience has allowed you to enter capitalism. So I'd love for you to talk some more about, you know, maybe expand on that, what you started with Marian Faithful on the, on the ways that this idea plays out in the um in in the origin stories and in the lives of so many of the women that you that you study yeah um and not only i think this plays out not only in their stories but also kind of going back to those girls magazines like this is also the story that you get in a lot of those where it's like girl starts from nothing goes to the big city overcomes a bunch of challenges and ta-da she's got this fabulous life um which kind of gets trotted out as this really compelling kind of fairy tale narrative that just was not actually accessible for a lot of people like a lot of a lot of people like they get as far as the like hard work part of it and then that's where they are forever um i think i think what's what's interesting about this particular narrative is the way that it um picks up on um the idea that a lot of the women who i wrote about in the book kind of were portrayed as being ordinary girls who went on to become something sort of extraordinary um and you know, a lot of the ways in which their their stories were told kind of emphasized again this idea that they were they were girls who were like just like you. So if you read about them in the press, um, particularly in the press directed at young women, there's this sense of like they that they were your peers, um, even though these were people who were definitely kind of exceptional, who were able to kind of overcome being ordinary and become this sort of like extraordinary figure. Um, I think some of the, some of my favorite examples of the primary sources that I used when I was 
putting together the book were um, there were instances where Sandy Shaw or Dusty Springfield or Lulu or somebody would actually kind of write the advice columns in some of the teen magazines. So there was this sense of like, they were your peers who had been through the same things that you had been through and they had kind of stepped up and gone beyond and become these kind of sort of exemplars of, you know, what it could be to be a girl who is like living the best possible life. And they're now kind of reflecting back with this sort of earned wisdom that comes from sort of being resilient and being, you know, brave and going out and kind of getting this exciting music career. But it, you know, it it's, it's a sort of mask in a lot of ways, because it sort of obscures a lot of the hard work that they had to do because these stories are very like they kind of make it seem like things just happened um they kind of hide a lot of the sexism that is going on in the music industry as well and the sort of the ways that decisions were being made that you know weren't necessarily in girls best interests so like I always think of like Marianne Faithful's story of getting signed to a record label was that Andrew Oldham, who was the Rolling Stones manager, saw her at a party and decided to give her a record deal because she had enormous breasts. Like that's the story. And, you know, the fact that like those kinds of motivations were, you know, dictating a lot of the decisions that were being made is sort of absent from the sort of fairy tale narrative of, you know, girls sort of overcoming and becoming pop stars. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, as like we talked about before, I think it's particularly insidious for women singers where it's like there has to be this kind of, trauma narrative in order for them to be taken seriously in order for their music to be taken seriously once they have been a pop star so to kind of move into rock or in marianne faithful's case punk um you have to have kind of shown that you've left this pop star world behind because that music is associated with young women with consumerism and so to kind of move into that more sort of quote-unquote authentic space um it's like there needs to be again, this sort of really active demonstration that like you have overcome something. Well, any discussion of authenticity in this genre, I think also we need to talk about appropriation and cultural exchange, right? So as you said, Dusty Springfield, this comes up a lot with her because she, um, she was a real advocate for Black American women who were coming to the UK. She was an advocate for Motown, that sort of thing. But, you know, writ large, the whole industry, the whole pop industry in the UK was fundamentally based upon the music of Black America. And um, I'm wondering how, you know, how do you disentangle, how do you understand this incredibly complicated thing that's happening um, between uh, you know, Britain and America, white and black. And, you know, maybe I can direct you a little bit towards, you know, this wonderful discussion you have of Dusty Springfield, where you make it very clear that it is, it is not enough to say, oh, she's the white girl with a black voice, right? That that is reductive and overly simplistic. And so can you talk to me a little bit about how you see, you know, what's going on in that continua- continuum between appropriation and exchange Uh, between the two countries and between races. The Dusty Springfield example is such a complicated and thorny one to talk about because, as you say, she was really trying to position herself as an advocate and as a supporter and as somebody who was kind of elevating um, Motown artists and then also many of the other Black singers who she collaborated with. But at the same time, she's working in an industry where, you know, appropriation is kind of the order of the day. And, you know, the, she's always going to be, her ability to kind of do good is always going to be limited by the institution in which she is working. Um, And, you know, I think one that there's some interesting kind of back and forth 
between her and journalists and other people on the sort of the question of her voice. And she, she really at various times kind of pushed back on the idea that she had a kind of black voice. Um, but, you know, at the same time, like it's clear that people sort of still heard it that way. So it's like, no matter what she tried to do and no matter how much she tried to advocate, you know, she's still working within this system where, you know, we hear certain kinds of vocal inflections and vocal gestures as sort of being quote unquote black. Um, people are always going to kind of notice the sort of novelty of the white singer who is kind of using those kinds of vocal gestures. And so it's like, there's, there's kind of only so much you can do. And then she also kind of really sort of idealized Black soul music. And, you know, when she ultimately went to the United States to record an album um, in Memphis, that turned out to be a really kind of disillusioning experience for her because she realized that this kind of like racial utopia that she had envisioned wasn't really possible. Um, She found that she, you know, wasn't as kind of comfortable recording in that setting as she had hoped she would be. And so that was a really kind of difficult experience. And I think, too, you know, you also see how because she was sort of the face of her collaborations with Motown, so she does this television special in 65 with the Motown Review, she's really the face of it. So she's singing with Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, and there's giant pictures of Dusty Springfield's face behind them. And so... You know, she is she at that point was more famous in England than they were. And so it's again, she's trying to be an advocate, but at the same time, you know, she is still sort of like the face. And so I think it really just shows how, you know, we need to be sort of critical of the systems in which we're working, but we also have to kind of see that, you know, that as kind of white folks, there's only like so much that, you know, we can do when we're working within a racist system. And so like, how do we kind of step back and how do we like actually do um, things that are going to elevate in this case, black musicians without kind of overshadowing. Um, It's a really kind of difficult line to walk. Um, I think the other, the other artist who's, trajectory kind of really shows how this kind of operated at this period was P.P. Arnold, who was, she's a black singer from Los Angeles who came to the UK as part of the Ike and Tina Turner review. She was one of the Ikeettes and sang backup for Ike and Tina. Um, And she ended up staying in the UK um, and she signed to Immediate Records, which was the record label that um, Andrew Lou Goldman, who had worked with the Rolling Stones previously had founded. Um, And this was a case where she was really highly sought after because she was sort of seen as representing this kind of like authentic voice of black America. And when the record label is sort of at its peak, you know, she was a kind of hot commodity for them and she was taken care of, but then the label ended up closing and she was essentially just sort of cut loose. And so there was this sense there that like her voice was sort of valuable and her work was valuable, um, but only up to a point. Um, And, you know, she then found herself kind of navigating the sort of music industry on her own without a support network. Um, And, you know, I think it also shows how those kind of systems of appropriation kind of, operated in kind of that direction as well for how they kind of created conditions where black artists had to kind of had a much more difficult time kind of navigating uh, the music industry than many of their white peers did. Like she just kind of was, she talks about this as being sort of like the dark time in her career where she was just sort of left to kind of fend for herself after having been portrayed as the sort of, feminine voice of this record label when they were kind of really trading in on the kind of cultural cachet that her voice brought to them because it was the voice of a black woman. Well, and, and, you know, just shows how these systems are not, um, they're not set up 
to be navigated by yourself, right? That the artist needs it, particularly, as you say, non-white artists, whatever, you know, the, the ethnic background or racial background is, when you have a system that is dominated by white people and the norms of white relationships, if you are not white and you don't have someone who's sort of shepherding you through that, it becomes extraordinarily difficult to, to maneuver through them. And I, I think her example is one that shows that, that, um, uh, it's, it, you know, it's not, it's not set up to be navigated by yourself. As I said, you know, it's, 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 um, it's not like a conveyor belt. And like, once you're plopped on it, it's just going to take you from place to place. Like, it's not that simple, you know? Exactly. And I think like the irony is that like, that there's this, I think there's this sense that like a lot of the male artists were these kind of lone iconoclasts who did navigate it by themselves when that's not actually true. They were part of a community that made it, that elevated them and kind of made it possible for them to succeed. So the other thing that comes up, um, I'm still thinking about your very first answer actually, is this idea of sexuality and respectability, right? That, that any woman I think who is in the public sphere has to deal with this, like um, that how sexy is too sexy, how respectable is too respectable, how do you navigate that? And I think um, for Black women, this has more minefields than for white, but for also for young women, I think in, in some ways it has more minefields for them than someone who's, say, in their late 20s or 30s when they are sort of fully developed as women. Um, you have these young girls who, I mean, there's some pretty uh, disturbing rhetoric around them um, uh, and the ways that um, uh, they need to sort of inhabit changing and growing bodies in a system that is set up to sexualize them because it is a public forum. It is, you know, it's popular music. It's all of that. So can you talk to me about the different ways some of these women had to tread this very um, difficult terrain? Yeah. So I think for a lot of them, it was like walking this line between, you know, I need to be exciting and novel and therefore, you know, embody this kind of new sexual freedom that we're seeing because it's the 60s and that's what's going on versus I need to also kind of walk the line and, you know, make sure that I am not too sexual. Um, I think I, I Lulu's story for me is always the one that exemplifies that really well because, you know, she's, she's 14 when she has her first hit. Um, and that's extremely young. Um, within a couple of years, you see her in interviews talking about how she feels so constricted by this sort of youthful image that has been established for her. She feels like she can't break out of it. Um, and in her memoir, years later, she talks about feeling like re she really talks about it in terms of like feeling like she was being trying to be preserved in amber as the sort of like virginal figure. Um, so with her, there was this kind of attempt to kind of lock her in to this really sort of respectable, youthful, virginal image um, that she felt made it harder for her to move into the direction of rock and roll. Um, for other singers, you kind of see a lot of like really, so, so with Lulu, you know, she talks about that kind of feeling really penned in by that. Um, but with other singers, you see like just language describing them in like sexual ways that is really alarming because of how young they were. So Marianne Faithful again is almost from the outset kind of being talked about in these sort of hypersexual terms. Um, there are, you know, kind of accounts of her being in performance and, you know, men just kind of like ogling her. Um, and, you know, with her, that kind of became a different kind of constricting identity. So that kind of leads to the incident where she is kind of portrayed as this kind of fallen woman 
who is associated with rock and roll and associated with the Rolling Stones and sort of represents like everything bad that rock and roll can do to white British culture because she is from a sort of upper class background and has fallen in with these sort of bad boys who are playing black music. And so she kind of comes to be represented as this sort of spoiled white girl. Right. Um, And so, you know, I think both of the stories kind of illustrate the sort of constrictions and also the pitfalls and like how easy it is for women to, in this period, especially to, kind of slip into these sorts of identities and then how hard it is for them to shake them um, because it just became the narrative that was trotted out about them again and again and again. Um, Lulu's story, you know, she, I, I, I find some of, some of the, some of the pieces that were written about Lulu in the sixties, I actually find kind of, they're a little bit sort of, I don't know. I don't know that they're funny, but like she talks about at one point wanting to change her performing her stage name from Lulu to Louise so that people will think that she's more adult. Um, She eventually kind of gets married um, fairly young to um, Maurice Gibb from the Bee Gees. And so their wedding is kind of splashed all over the music papers. And when that happens, the sort of tone of her coverage sort of shifts. And she talks a lot about like, you know, now she's an adult and she's married and she has this kind of like different kind of an adult life. And so for her shaking that sort of youthful virginal image sort of meant moving on to this other kind of socially acceptable stage of womanhood. Um, So I think those two stories taken in kind of in parallel are just really interesting illustrations of the sorts of, pitfalls and then the sorts of kind of just really again sort of restrictive and limited sorts of paths that a lot of these girls found themselves dealing with well lulu in particular i found really interesting because frankly and when i was listening to you know the tracks that you were discussing and when she comes out and she sings shout she sounds like she's been smoking a pack a day for 20 years, you know? So her, to me, I don't, you don't hear the youth in her voice the way that you do in some of the others. And yet she's the one that shaped so much about being portrayed as being so young. It's, it's, it's really a fascinating juxtaposition between the two. And I think with her, like, it's like her youthful image I think what was happening there was her youthful image was kind of like moderating her voice in a way. So it was this voice that sounded really gritty, almost kind of raunchy, but then she's so petite and she's so kind of bright and bubbly. Those are the the words that get used to talk about her a lot that it's sort of, it's like it kind of moderates her voice in a way, um, which I think is a really kind of interesting dynamic that happens with her in particular. So we are coming to the end of our time, and uh, we've there's way more that we could talk about, but I maybe I'll have this as my last question about the book. Um, several of the uh, singers that you um, profile, you bring them to close to the present and sort of what happens to their career in the 21st century. One of them is Marianne Faithful, and you appended something that you must have written right before it went to press um, based on when this was published um, about Marianne Faithful, who almost dies of COVID. And of course, since we are still you know, dealing with COVID and trying to figure out how to navigate COVID, um, you write so movingly about how it affected you to hear of her, this latest health challenge, and the fact that, um, at least when you wrote this, she was saying she might not be able to sing again because of the effects of what sounds like long COVID. So can you talk to me a little bit about sort of the third acts of these women's lives, and particularly Marion Faithful, and why it affected you so much to hear about her experience with COVID? Yeah, well, I think in that case, so she she did end up um, releasing an album um, shortly after I wrote that that section, but it's an entirely spoken word album. So she's reading poetry um, over, kind of overlaid over these kind of beautiful musical arrangements. Um, and I think what really affected me in kind of learning about her kind of experience with COVID um, 
was that, you know, there's a way in which there's a direct line that you can draw from what happened to her in the 60s to the fact that she got so ill um, during the pandemic Um, because, you know, she experienced addiction. She experienced a lot of traumatic health issues because of the way that she was kind of chewed up and spat out by the music industry in the 1960s that, you know, I'm kind of speculating, but it's, it's, it would not be surprising to me if those kind of made her particularly vulnerable um, to COVID today. And so I think that story in particular kind of shows how the things that were happening then and the ideas about music that were coming out of that moment in the 1960s have these kind of long lasting ramifications in this case, potentially very like literal material kinds of ramifications. Um, You know, all of the singers, almost all of the singers in the book um, kind of have continued to perform. Um, Sandy Shaw briefly left music, um, became a therapist um, and then had, she, she had a sort of Renaissance in the eighties and she recorded with the Smiths who kind of were, tapping into her sort of 60s past as this sort of like melancholy, sort of moody um, girl from the 1960s. Um, Scylla Black, like I mentioned, had this really long um, television career, but she became this very kind of fraught figure where, you know, she was so associated with this sort of almost kind of lowbrow, almost schlocky kind of television entertainment, like variety shows. She hosted this show called Blind Date for many years, which was this sort of dating reality show um, that a lot of her musical stuff kind of gets obscured. And then she also, you know, she she became quite conservative um, later in life. And so there was also this sense that she had kind of betrayed her sort of working class roots because she kind of went in that sort of conservative direction, particularly during the Thatcher years. Um, P.P. Arnold, I think, is a particularly interesting person to kind of track into her current her current stage of performing. So she's, she's very, very active still. She, I mean, before the pandemic, she was very active and performing live quite frequently. Um, she just released a memoir that I'm very excited to get my hands on and read. Um, but she has, so she was able to kind of recover the rights to a set of recordings that she made in the late sixties that had kind of been shelved when immediate records went under. And so she re-released that album or released it for the first time. um, I guess it was in 2017, 2018. Um, And I write about this, this particular record in the book, it's called the turning tide. And it's, it's this really interesting kind of time capsule that was kind of, never heard until very recently. And so she's the, the sort of press coverage of that album has been again, a kind of interesting engagement with sort of resilience narratives and this idea that she had to sort of overcome all of this hardship. And now she's kind of got this triumph of an album that she's finally been able to get out. Um, so they've all kind of all had sort of interesting post sixties careers um, in different ways. Um, Millie small did not really record a lot after the sixties. And, you know, Dusty Springfield, of course, kind of continued recording and performing until her death in 1999. She of course is this sort of queer icon and sort of, diva figure um and she had a kind of comeback when she recorded with the pet shop boys um in the 90s well it's certainly a a very diverse and sort of every way you can think of group of women that you bring together in in this book um it has been a project that as you said you've been thinking about in one way or another since you were an undergraduate um uh, now that this book is out what are you working on uh today um so i have two two projects that I'm working on. Um, I don't know what they will be, if they will be books, if they will be articles or what. Um, One is uh, looking at the work of a music writer named uh, Dodie Smith. Um, 
she shares the same name as the author of 101 Dalmatians, but they are not the same person. Um, but she, she was a, uh, she is a writer who came to the United States and Canada from England in the 1960s and had a really interesting career writing for the underground press. And then she was David Geffen's assistant for a number of years when he was founding asylum records. Um, so I'm doing some work on, um, her work. And then I also have a sort of ongoing project about the singer Ema Sumac, who was a Peruvian soprano who uh, came to the United States in the 1950s and is known for having this really kind of wide and impressive vocal range that she would use to evoke the sounds of nature, of birds, of earthquakes. But then also she sang, she was classically trained and sang opera arias and um so I'm kind of interested in her voice and thinking about, you know, what her, the function of her voice um, in America in the 1950s. Those both sound fascinating. I look forward to seeing how they turn out. Um, thank you so much for being with me today to talk about this book. My name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books in Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. I've been talking to Alexander M. Apolloni, author of Freedom Girls, Voicing Femininity in 1960s British Pop, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you.